We have been examining Paul's argument for scriptural service, scriptural service in the idea of how the Bible defines how we're to serve one another. And we've been focusing on that subject in chapter 12, where the apostle corrects the Corinthians' carnal views of the spiritual gifts and um, and Christian service as well. So we know this, we've learned this already, that they had some really silly views of the spiritual gifts and they were misusing these things and not serving one another well. So that's the issue that was present in this church. And we already know there was about a thousand issues, but this was just one more. And we have been camped out on what we've been calling point three, is really there's three points to this whole section on Christian service, and we've been camped out on point three, which we've been calling the diversity of spiritual gifts. We've been walking through the nine spiritual gifts that Paul listed in our text. And last Sunday, we looked at, uh, we looked at I think, four of them. We looked at the spiritual gift of wisdom and knowledge and faith and then healings. And that was in um, verses seven to nine. And then this morning, we're going to look at three more spiritual gifts, because remember, there's nine in total. We'll look at three more, and then, Lord willing, this coming Sunday, we'll deal with the final two, which are probably of the nine or of all the spiritual gifts in the New Testament. The last two that we'll look at are, I would say, hands down the most debated, the most controversial uh, so that should make for a, I'd say, an action-packed morning next Sunday, okay? So we'll see how that goes. And that, that's the one where I will have to heed my wife's advice that she gave me this morning. I said, honey, we're okay. I'm not on a subject that's going to really raise my temperature. But she said this morning, you better watch it. Be careful how you deal with this. Don't get too passionate. Don't get too fired up. Well, that's potentially this coming Sunday, because that's the one that really... <laughs> Hi, I'm Phil Baker. It's good to meet you. Yeah, that's the one that gets me fired up. So uh, not today, per se. I will be fired up today, but not as much as potentially next week. Um, take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to 1 Corinthians. We're only going to be in like the middle of chapter... We're in chapter 12, but we're going to be in the middle of verse 10. We're not getting any further than verse 10 today, because verse 10, I think, actually has five of the gifts listed. So we're going to be looking at three of them in there. So 1 Corinthians 12, verse 10, I want to pray before we get to work. Lord, I want to heed my wife's advice and just help, just ask you, Lord, in humility to give me the right temperament and attitude and love as we deal with these subjects. Um, I suppose when we are dealing with spiritual gifts, a great many of us have the potential to get pretty fired up, and that's because we see imitations in the church today. We see the misuse of them. We see the things that Paul saw in Corinth several thousand years ago. And so, uh, Lord, I just want to love your people as you love your people, and I uh, want to, to, to preach these things with clarity and precision and love. And uh, so help me to do that. Uh, help the congregation today to be good listeners. It's not just that I need to be a good preacher, uh, according to your standards, but we need to be good listeners. And we need to be humble. 
and listen carefully to what your word teaches on these subjects so that we can grow in our discernment, so we can learn and figure out what's true and false out there, and so that our own personal theologies of these subjects would be developed according to Scripture. And so um, we, we don't need to try to err on the side of past experiences in these things right now. We don't need to think about things that we've seen or things that we think we understand. What we only need to do right now is hear your word. And what this congregation doesn't need to do is hear the opinions of a cessationist. It needs to hear from you, from your word. And that's where we need to land. That's what we need to live. That's what we need to carry out. So uh, be with us today, Lord. Give us your mercy and grace in your word as we deal with these sometimes difficult subjects. We love you and pray in Christ's name. Amen. So let's pick up where we left off last Sunday and look at the next spiritual gift on Paul's nine spiritual gift list. E, it's miracles versus 10A or verse 10A, miracles. He just says simply, remember he's saying to, to this one, God gives this, to that one, God gives that and so on and so forth. Now he says to another God gives or the spirit gives a manifestation is the working of miracles. And this is piggybacking off of healing, so you might be led to think that this would be the same thing, but it is a little different because a, a supernatural healing would obviously be a miracle. Uh, but remember, we're not talking about healings or miracles in general. We're talking about the gift to perform these things. So, um, and let me just give you some more background on the way that we should perceive and look at these gifts. This is something that I should have said last week that somehow escaped me. So let me build some more context for you. Of the nine spiritual gifts on Paul's list, uh, five, I would classify five as continuing. That means they're ongoing. Uh, they're still present with us. And then I would classify four as ceasing. So you have continuing gifts that will be around and still present. And then you have some that have ceased. They're done. Their time is done. Um, and by definition, if a gift is continuing, that's exactly what it means. It means that it will continue to be given by the Spirit to certain believers throughout the entire church age, from Pentecost, which is where the Spirit came and brought all these things, to the return of Christ or the second advent. So think of it like that. A continuing gift is a gift from the Holy Spirit that lasts the duration of the entire church age from really the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. Because some of the apostles were given these gifts, or they, all of the apostles, I think, were given these gifts before Pentecost. So a continuing gift lasts the whole span. It, it, it's there the whole time. And then on the other side, if a gift is ceasing, this means that it will cease to be given by the Spirit during the same period. At some point between the bookends of the first and second advent, that gift would be given by the Spirit and put to use by those who receive it, but it has an expiration date. And the expiration date, it won't be given out anymore, is what that means. That would come according to the Lord's determining. Uh, so you have continuing gifts. You have ceasing gifts. Um, the ceasing, if you want to call it a ceasing class of spiritual gifts, would be based on a great many scriptures in totality. 
Um, but there is one particular verse that does mention them, and it's in the same book in the next chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 to 10, where Paul indicates that certain gifts will cease before they will terminate before the return of Christ. Okay, so, so in that text, Paul mentions some of the spiritual gifts that the Spirit gives that would be terminated prior to to the return of Christ. And so that, that's one of the definitive passages that guys like me who think they're not ongoing use to show that they're no longer ongoing, as well as the absence of evidences and these other things. Uh, in the previous section, what we looked at last Sunday, we were introduced to the first ceasing gift uh, in the list of ceasing gifts or in the list of all the gifts, and that was the gift of healing. Again, that is not to say that healings do not occur. It is to say that this particular supernatural spirit-given gift is no longer given. Uh, it was given to the apostles. It was given to a handful of others. Why? For the purpose of authenticating the gospel they preached, which had not yet been fully recorded. Okay, it had not been fully recorded. When the apostles were out preaching, they were literally preaching the New Testament. It had not been written down. It was coming through the Spirit, through revelatory function, through the Spirit, through them. And so prior, prior to the word being completed by John at the end of his apostolic uh, time, it, you had this gift of healing, and it was given to authenticate and to prove the authority of the word preached. Uh, for example, Peter, he absolutely, as one of the apostles, he possessed and utilized these this gifts or these gifts of healing, this supernatural imparted gift from the Spirit. He had it, and he utilized it on uh, from time to time. He didn't walk around doing whatever he wanted with it or you know, healing at will. He used it when God wanted him to use it. In fact, I don't really think that anyone who possessed this gift could, could just literally wield this power anytime they wanted. It had a person, place. It, it had a context. So. But in any case, he had it. Uh, example, when a lame beggar cried out to him and John for alms, right? You know, we see that today over at Costco and other places. There's people that are out begging and, and panhandling and asking for alms. They, it was huge in the first century, and they crossed paths with a guy who was uh, lame. He, he couldn't walk, and he asked Peter and John for, you know, hey, you got some cash or something? I need to get a hot dog at Costco or whatever. And uh, Peter replied, I, I don't have any gold or silver to give you, but what I do have, I can give you. And he says, in the and this is literally what Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And the man immediately leapt to his feet like a gazelle. It's actually the fulfillment of a minor prophet, uh, something he said, I think it might have been Joel, but... He leapt to his feet like a gazelle, literally sprung. Didn't have to learn how to walk after never being able to walk or losing his walking ability. He not only had the ability to stand and walk, he didn't have to go through rehab or physical therapy. He just jumps up and literally starts moonwalking all over the beautiful gate. It was like the first Michael Jackson we've ever seen. I mean, the guy just got up and he's leapt and he's dancing around. He looked probably like a Harry Krishna with the things, you know. He didn't look like that, but very excited because he was walking and he was kind of just moving around and people were blown away. 
It was an amazing thing, but in this scenario, the gifts of healing were given to Peter to authenticate the one Peter preached, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You understand? Whenever these miracles were performed, whenever someone flexed or utilized this impartation and gift from the Spirit, it was always done for the sake of proving and authenticating the one they preached. That's the connection. You know, if, if, if in the first century before the Word was created, because now we have this historical revelatory record, prior to that, if, if you went around and you had no other evidence or anything to point to, no scriptural authority yet, because it had not been completely written, only Old Testament, if you went around talking about how Jesus has the power to heal someone, you could say that all you wanted. But to say that and then to prove it through healing in his name, what does that do? That authenticates the one that you're preaching. So before you have this document, which is the authenticator, you had to have signs and wonders to authenticate. So when this Peter says, rise and walk in the name of Jesus, he rises and walks, the guy immediately gives credit to Jesus. What you've been saying about him is true. So this is the way the gift worked. Uh, demonstrations of supernatural healing like this, they served as a temporary, or they served as temporary testimonies until the full testimony of God was completed and closed, right? And that's the scripture. Uh, when John penned Revelation, that's it. That was it. The full testimony of God had come in upon the completion of this Bible. And you might think, well, it wasn't completed until like 369 when they canonized it. No, the full scriptures were in circulation long before 369 when it was canonized. Um, you could read Revelation at the tail end of the first century into the second century. So all the books were being used by churches. They just didn't, they had them in scrolls and individually written. They didn't have this fancy bound Bible, which all the fake leather's coming off, by the way. Uh, so, but these, these miracles and these signs and wonders and these healings, they were temporary testimonies until the completion of this bad boy right here. And so once this is complete, there is no longer any need to authenticate it with signs and wonders. The testimony is complete. You just think about all the miracles that are recorded, especially in this New Testament. Think about what John says at the end of his gospel. He says, literally, Jesus did so many more things that he had actually recorded, that the gospel writers had actually recorded, that he uses hyperbole. He says, I suppose there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain everything that Jesus did. And that's a very mysterious, interesting thing that he says. The point being that Jesus did a lot of miracles to authenticate who he is. If he says... If he had said, I am the Messiah and in my kingdom, talking about the kingdom to come, there will be no sickness and these sorts of things. If you're going to say that and claim that you're the Messiah, you have to be able to back that with action. You have to prove it by healing somebody to demonstrate what the kingdom will be like. That's exactly what Jesus did. Gave the same authority and power and abilities to the apostles. So healings. It's a sign gift temporarily given until the completion of this. Same thing for miracles, because you're thinking, well, we're talking about miracles now. It's the same thing. After the Spirit had completed his task of inspiring and recording the inerrant full testimony of God's Word, this whole Bible, 
spiritual gifts that were put in place as a type of, they, they were, you know, the ones that were put in place as a type of intermediary between the verbal and written testimony of God, they're no longer needed and therefore ceased. You don't need them anymore because you have the full testimony. We're told about all the miracles. I don't have to keep seeing them. I'm told about them. So now think of this. Due to the testimonial and even revelatory nature of the gifts that have ceased, okay, so the gifts that we're talking about, miracles and healing, they're revelatory in a way. They reveal the presence of God. They reveal the power of God. They reveal the person of God, right? When Jesus wields them, he's proving who he is. They're revelatory in a sense. They really are. They're like scripture in a way. They reveal due to the, the testimonial and revelatory nature of the ceasing gifts, if we say that they are now continuing and have been, what is that like saying? It's like saying this is incomplete. If they served a purpose as an intermediary between the word spoken verbally and the word recorded or written physically. That's the completion of it. If we say that they are ongoing because they are revelatory, it is tantamount to saying that this is not complete. And one thing that you will find interesting is that those who say they are ongoing, the gifts are these Signs and wonders that were temporary and ceasing. When they say they're ongoing, this is the same group of people that usually say God is still speaking beyond what he has already said. So do you see how that can be an error? It can be erroneous for you to think that something that was temporary to the completion of this is still going because now we're implying, inferring, whatever, that this is not complete. And this, my friends, is complete. If this is complete, we don't need anything from the outside to testify to that. The only thing we need from the outside to testify to that are Christians who go around claiming it. Sola Scriptura. That's exactly how the Reformers dealt with this error of thinking that the gifts are ongoing. Some of these gifts, not all, but some of these gifts are ongoing. And God is still speaking, right? He's speaking through popes and papacies and all these things. How did the Reformers combat that error? Sola, scriptura, scripture alone. So, today we live in an era where there's a great many people who name the name of Christ and say some of these gifts are still given, the ceasing gifts are still given to people. And, but what that implies is that since they're revelatory, this isn't done. So it's, it's, it's not just, it's not a mild error to make to say that they're continuing. It's kind of catastrophic because you're saying the word is not complete. Again, this is not to say, and I think this is what happens, we conflate, we mingle real healings with the gift of healing. That's the mistake we make. This is not to say, what I'm saying now is not to say that supernatural healings do not occur. What I'm saying is that God does not give out that gift to any individuals any longer so they can do that. That's what I'm saying. So we make the mistake of conflating the two. Think about it. When you hear someone say that, that God doesn't heal like that anymore, you say to yourself, I've seen him heal people of addictions and these sorts of things. Amen. Hey, praise the Lord. We are not saying, as a cessationist, we're not saying that God doesn't heal. We're simply saying, we're talking about gifts. We're simply saying that he no longer gives that gift to any individual. There are no healers any longer. 
That just doesn't take place because there's no reason for it because those gifts were revelatory. And if I say they're ongoing and Joe Schmo over in this church in New York has this gift, what we're saying about him is that, first of all, we're saying something about him that isn't true. Secondly, we're saying the word is not complete. It's complete. So we're not saying that supernatural healings have ceased. This is to say that the gifts that enabled certain believers to perform supernatural healings is no longer given by the Spirit. That's the distinction we must make. Don't conflate them. The granting, in other words, the granting of this gift by the Spirit, talking about miracles, talking about healing, it has come to an end. No one, no person in the world today possesses it. If Think of it like this. If supernatural healing, if a supernatural miracle occurs, it's not because of a gifted man or woman. It's not. It's because God has demonstrated his awesome power and very likely decided to answer the prayers of his people. Now in verse 10a, Paul introduces the second ceasing gift in his list, and that is the work of miracles. The first was healing. Now we have miracles. By definition, a miracle is what? A supernatural intrusion into the natural world and its natural laws, explainable only by divine intervention. It is an act of God that is contrary to the ordinary working and laws of nature, an act that only he could accomplish by overruling nature and that could not otherwise occur during any other circumstances. That definition comes from John MacArthur. It's very good. That's what a miracle is. It is a supernatural interruption of natural law, defying the laws of nature. That's what it means. And now that could be a healing. It could be any number of things. The spiritual gift of miracles was given to some, particularly the apostles, so that they could defy natural laws in an effort to authenticate the supernatural message they preached, the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? They, the, the apostles were gifted with this amazing manifestation of the Spirit to defy the very laws that essentially, in a way, govern all physical things in, in the universe. They could defy those things. They could do things that nature says, no, you can't do. The unexplainable. Didn't Jesus himself possess this gift as the Son of God and as God himself? And didn't he exercise it frequently? Absolutely. He performed miracles to prove who he said he is, didn't he? he let me give you examples. He defied nature by silencing one of the most awesome displays of nature, a storm. That is power to stop a storm, Mark 4, 25 to 41, he ceased the storm. The boat was going to capsize, and he cries out, and all of a sudden it's mellow. That's one way that he defied natural law and performed a miracle that does that. He defied nature by feeding thousands and thousands of people from a single meal, on at least two separate occasions. The laws of nature say that a peanut butter jelly sandwich and Doritos will feed one person. 
fish taco meal will feed one person, right? Maybe two at best if you're a light eater. That's never been in my vocabulary. Uh, but Jesus somehow takes enough food for someone according to the laws of nature and multiplies it and multiplies it and multiplies it and feeds 5,000 men in one instance and 4,000 men in another instance, not including any wives or children. That is a miracle by definition. You just defied the laws of nature. Matthew 14, 13 to 21, Matthew 15, 29 to 39. Jesus defied nature by healing sick people and by raising the dead. Matthew 4:24, Luke 7, 11 to 17, uh, Luke 8, 40 to 56. I mean, you could just go on and on and on. John 11:38 to 44. John said it himself. He did so much. I don't think there's enough books to contain it all. He was constantly defining, uh, defy, uh, defying, pardon me, de pardon me, de de uh, defying nature. Uh, he defied supernature. What's supernature? The invisible spiritual realm, right? The nature that exists that we cannot see, the invisible nature. I just call it supernature. I don't think it's a legitimate term. Uh, we call that the spiritual realm. He even defied that, didn't he? Because he cast demons out of people all the time, performed exorcisms. Mark 5, 1 to 13, you think of the legion of demons that he cast out. That is defying the nature that exists that we cannot see. So he not only defied physical nature, what we can see, he defied an invisible nature, the spiritual realm. He did this over and over and over. Jesus was a big time violator of natural law. Violated it all the time to authenticate his personhood, to demonstrate the presence, power, and perfections of the kingdom of God. As I said earlier, if the kingdom of God will be a place of no sickness and death, then its ruler, its king, must prove it. And Jesus did it over and over and over. And the Holy Spirit gave this particular spiritual gift to some for the purpose of authenticating the gospel they preached like the gifts of healing, the gift of miracles, also served as a temporary testimony until God's full testimony, the Bible, was completed. As the same rule applies, the ceasing gifts were given as an intermediary, intermediary between the verbal and recorded word. Once the word is recorded and done, there's no need for those gifts Miracles is the same thing. Again, that is not to say that miracles are completely gone. It is just to say that the gift of being able to perform them has ceased. B.B. Warfield wrote, These miraculous gifts were part of the credentials of the apostles as authoritative agents of God in founding the church. Their function confined them distinctly to the apostolic church, and they necessarily passed away with it, meaning... The gifts passed, these ceasing gifts passed away with the apostles. They were given to them uh, for the reason of planting and beginning the church and for authenticating the word that the church would live by. Now, we have to ask the question, of course, do miracles occur today? Of course. Again, you don't want to conflate the gift of miracles with miracles themselves. When you do that, you say, no, I think you're wrong because I think miracles still happen. They do. 
It's just that that gift that was given to the apostles and a few others, that is no longer given. It hasn't been given since the second century. So nobody walks around with this spiritual gift. But if a miracle occurs, it is still God who is supernaturally bypassing nature to perform something. Why does he do it? Does he do it to reveal the truth? No, this is the full revelation of God. He might do it because he's compassionate, because he's loving, because he still chooses to demonstrate his power. Maybe he does it to point people to the word. He has his reasons for doing what he's doing. But in terms of somebody getting this gift and walking around with it, that just hasn't happened for a very, very long time. Miracles are still going. It's just the gift of miracles that has ceased. No one in the world today possesses this spiritual gift, although there's a great many people who say they do, but they don't have it. Why? It's not necessary for them to have it because we have the 66 book testimony of God's infallible revelation and word. If we say that the gift is still given, and we know that miracles are like healings. They are revelatory in a sense. If we say that they are ongoing, we are again saying this is not complete. This is not enough. This is not sufficient. What does God say? What does God say through the inspired apostle in Timothy? This is sufficient for all things. But if we say that we need all these things attached to it, we are saying this is not sufficient. Did you know that God actually works miracles through the book itself when sometimes people are reading it? Have you never read the testimony of Augustine? Have you never read the testimony of Martin Luther and others? I think with the testimony of Augustine, I think he's in a garden, or maybe it was Luther, one of them. I might be conflating the two stories, but there is an historical account of how a man who was raised to be a Christian but wasn't a Christian but actually he's in a garden. I don't know what he's doing in the garden. Maybe checking out the jalapenos, maybe the habaneros, maybe the ghost peppers because his name's Harry. That's all this guy grows. Harry Sr., he grows the hottest peppers in the world. Don't ever eat anything he gives you. You'll blow your face off. <laughs> I don't know what he's doing in this garden, but he's there and literally a breeze blows his Bible open to I think like Romans 8 or 10 and he begins to read and his soul and his heart are regenerated right in that moment. That is the miracle of regeneration. It occurs without any miracle worker there because they didn't exist. But it happens. Was it Augustine or was it Luther? I think it was Augustine. Thank you. I know my history, but when I get in the pulpit, I'm like a scared chihuahua because it's not in the script. So miracles occur just by the very reading of this book of miracles. Is this not a book of miracles? Why would we need miracles today when I have a full account of them? Why would I need to see them? The reason why I would need to see them is because I don't trust this. I don't believe this is enough, right? You cannot say that these gifts are ongoing and that they're necessary for authenticating this without abandoning sola scripture. If the word says it's sufficient, I don't need anything attached to it to make it sufficient, like miracles or healings. But God still does these things. He does. He does them all the time. Every time a saint is, every time a sinner is saved by grace, that's the greatest miracle I think I've ever even heard of or read about. So they're still ongoing, uh, but we don't need to have that gift distributed any longer because this is complete. I mean, like I said, does this not show us plenty of miracles? If we are not satisfied with the testimony of God's word in its account of all the miracles and everything else, and we are demanding to see this spiritual gift in youth today, 
Are we not behaving? Uh, we are not, I would say, behaving like God's people. If we want the attachment and the gifts ongoing, we're not, if this isn't enough for us, we're not acting like God's people at all. In fact, we're acting like what Jesus said. And he said, it is a wicked and adulterous generation that always wants signs and wonders. Those are the words of Jesus. Because they came to him and were always asking for him to perform miracles. And every time he did that, he never accommodated them. He ran by his time schedule, no one else's. But miracles never change anyone's heart. The only miracle that can change a heart is regeneration. You think of the, the story of uh, Lazarus and Dives in Luke 17 where, you know, this guy is cast down into Hades and he's suffering and then he sees on the other side of the chasm, he sees, sees Lazarus who is a poor beggar and he's being comforted by Abraham and this guy's in torment, this guy's in paradise and this guy's saying, hey, can you bring me at least a drop of water? And Abraham's like, no, you're over there and that's your lot. You rejected Christ, you didn't show compassion and love to others, you didn't live as a Christian, you're done. And he says, well, can you at least send Lazarus to go and warn my brothers about this? Which would have been what? If in that parable, that challenge was answered positively, that means that Lazarus would have been raised to back to life to go and tell this suffering sinner's story to these men. That would have been a, the miracle of raising someone from the dead. And so that's what this guy wants. Go raise him from the dead and him go warn my brothers. And Abraham, which is really Jesus' response is spectacular. They won't believe if they see the risen Lazarus. They won't believe, they won't even believe the testimony they have, the book of Moses. What he's saying is the Old Testament. If they're not going to believe this, they're not going to believe any miracle that's performed before their very eyes. Just so you know and just so you understand, miracles... They don't change people's attitude toward God. They don't. If that were true, then there would have been, the church would have been much larger than 120 right before the Spirit came. Because Jesus did so many miracles, there's not enough books. Jesus said of Capernaum, if the signs and wonders that I performed had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. And he said that about Capernaum, which is where his home base was. Miracles don't change people. It is a wicked and perverse generation that demands them as a proof to authenticate this. And the reality is it doesn't matter how many miracles are thrown down in front of them. They will not believe. The only miracle that brings faith is regeneration. That's it. So... Do we need to have people walking around with the gift of miracles today? No. The word is complete and has plenty of miracles in it, more than any singular person could ever perform in their lifetime. We don't need that kind of authentication. We need to, by faith, believe what the word says. But that is not to say that miracles do not exist. It's just the gift that is gone. If a miracle occurs... If natural law is suspended for a moment, for any length of time, because that's what that is, it's not because of a gifted man or woman. It's not because somebody has been this big word thrown around in a lot of circles, anointed with the gift. It's because God has chosen to supersede and override nature, which he holds in the palm of his hand, to display his power, maybe, to answer the prayers of his people, maybe. Whatever his desire in that moment is, that's why it happens. It's not because somebody has the gift. Okay? There's no need for the gift any longer. 
Okay, so that's miracles, that's healing again. There are ceasing gifts. Does that make sense to you? Does it make sense that when you look at your Bible, you can say to yourself, there's no need for those things anymore because this is complete? That's the way you should look at it. Let's move to the next one. F. This is a tricky one. Prophecy. We see this right in the middle of verse 10. Verse 10b. He says, to another, right? To, to, to one, to, to another he gives miracles. And then he says, to another, prophecy. Prophecy. Boy, is there... This might be the second most confused and debated of the gifts next to the ones we'll look at next week, tongues and interpretation. To another prophecy, 10b. Now, according to, to my study, according to my understanding, and I, I read so many commentaries on this, and I think Dave came over for something. I think he came over to pick up a DVD or something, and I was showing him the list of commentaries that I had read on really all of this stuff, but mostly on prophecies, because I was trying to get my mind around what it means when you see the word in, in the Bible. And I'm, I'm pointing them out, and there's like, I think there was like seven or nine. And he's like, so what's your, you know, what do you think after reading them all? And I said, I am confused. It just, everyone has a different definition. And so what I tried to do was I tried to harmonize what everyone, and these are really, really good commentaries. These are not, this is not the Joyce Meyer commentary series we're talking about. Okay, so th these, are, these are good, and, and the opinions vary, and the, in the way that they explain this phenomenon is interesting. And so what I try to do is take a little bit from all of them and harmonize them, because I think they can be harmonized, these explanations. And I think you can develop a theology based on all of these ideas, obviously based on Scripture, because the Scripture says many things about the subject. So very, very challenging one. Um, I think the tongues and stuff next week will be easier. This is, wasn't as easy. So according to my analysis, I think there's three types of prophecy in the Bible. There's not one. There's not two. There's not three. There may be more, but I don't think there's one type, obviously. So according to my understanding, there's three, and I'll tell you what they are. Number one, predictive. Predictive is revelatory, okay? I'll explain it in more detail. There's predictive, and by the way, they all have Ps. You know how I am, right? There's predictive, there's pastoral, and there's pseudo, okay? I think if you study and read the Bible, you will see prophecies given, prophecies fulfilled, prophecies not fulfilled. You see a lot of stuff in the Bible, so you can't give prophecy one definition. But I see the three. There's predictive, pastoral, and pseudo. I want to get into this so you can help you understand. Predictive prophecy is just like it sounds. It has to do with revealing future events. Revealing how God is going to respond to a situation. Regarding, uh, re revealing how God is going to deal with a nation. How God is going to deal with a person. How God is going to deal with redemption in the future. How God is going to deal with the world in the end. How God, right? That's all predictive. You're predicting how God is going to move. So predictive prophecies are, by nature, revelatory. They are revelatory. They reveal the movement of God in the future, the acts of God in the future, the work of God in the future. So when you, when you think of predictive, now just stop and think about the Bible, especially the Old Testament. Is it not chock full of predictive prophecy? Oh my goodness, are you kidding me? Have you read the major prophets? 
Have you read the minor prophets? Did you even know that Moses was a prophet and that God had, that through Moses, God predicted that he would raise up a prophet like Moses, but greater. His name is Jesus. Everywhere in the Bible, you have predictive. You have predictive in the New Testament, not just the Old Testament. So prophecy, I would say primarily in, in the finished book is predictive. It is revelatory. Getting a little excited because it's an exciting thing to talk about. All of the major and minor prophets in the Old Testament were predictive in that they foretold things that would happen to Israel and to other nations and so on and so forth. For example, when Daniel interpreted King Nebi's vision of a multi-metal statue, he was prophesying and predicting the rise and fall of four powerful kingdoms, right? You know, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, right? And then the ultimate prediction within that prediction is that all of the kingdoms of the world would be replaced by the stone that falls from heaven, Christ and his kingdom. Daniel 2, 31 to 45. So in the book of Daniel, you can see predictive prophecy relating to four of the most powerful nations that have ever existed on earth, all ultimately destroyed. There are examples of predictive, that's an example of predictive uh, prophecy in the Old Testament. There are examples of this in the New Testament as well. Jesus prophesied and predicted his own arrest, crucifixion, death, and resurrection many, many, many times before that day had come. He kept telling his disciples. In fact, one time he told them, I'm going to be betrayed and arrested and handed over to Gentiles. I'll be killed and I'll rise on the third day. And Peter says, I will not allow this. Wait till you see me in action, brother. Get behind me, dumb Satan. Right? You remember that? What was Jesus doing? Predicting what would happen. Matthew 17 22 to 23 are, is an example of when he's predicting his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus prophesied and predicted the destruction of the temple, didn't he? You're going on and on about how beautiful this place is. I'm telling you there's coming a day where not one stone will be left unturned. What does that mean? It means the Romans are going to blast it into bits and turn all the stones to get all the gold and precious stones out of it. Jesus prophesied the fall of Jerusalem and the fall of the temple, which happened in what? 70 AD, after biblical times. So that's predictive prophecy. He said the temple would be absolutely obliterated. Matthew 24, 1 to 2. Jesus prophesied and predicted Judas's betrayal. And John 13, 21. I know you're going to betray me. There's someone at this table who's going to betray me. It's the one who dips at the same time as me. All right? He said that. And it was Judas who did it. Jesus prophesied and predicted Peter's thrice denial. I'd go to the ends of the earth with you. I will be there right with you. Uh, you're the commander. I'm Rambo. And by the time the rooster crows three times, you're going to reject me. I would never do that. Blah, blah, blah. It happened. Luke 22, 34. That's predictive prophecy. Jesus predicted, prophesied even Peter's own martyrdom and crucifixion, right? You will be carried away by men that you don't want to be carried out. They will stretch out your arms John 21, 18, Peter is told how he will die for Jesus. I would have said, I like all your prophecies except that one. Can we do something about it? No. Thank you. Agabus, do you know who that is? Agabus prophesied. He predicted Paul's arrest and deliverance into the hands of Gentiles. Acts 21, 11, literally 
Paul is standing before this guy, and this guy takes off Paul's belt and ties himself up with it, I'd be like, this is getting really weird. Why did you take off my belt and tie yourself up with it? Because this is what it's going to look like when you're arrested. Give me my belt back. Literally. He didn't say that. But this guy acted out Paul's arrest, predicting what would happen to Paul. Acts 21.11. Predictive prophecy is revelatory since it reveals things that either happened or will happen in the future. Since God's full revelation is contained in the Old Testament and New Testament, predictive prophecy as a spiritual gift, because it was given as one, it would no longer be necessary today. And this is precisely why a great many of us think that it is, I mean, we believe that it has ceased. Do we need anyone going around and predicting the future today when we have the full account of what's going to play out? And there are people today who say they have this spiritual gift. And they are predicting things like Trump winning a second election. <laughs> I don't think that happened. Uh, they're predicting things like, you know, here's what I do with you, COVID. <sighs> Remember Kenneth Copeland? And then couple hundred thousand people died. Yeah, that's, that's, that's not, there's people that say they have the gift, uh, but they don't. The things that they prophesy don't even come true. So this is not a gift that needs to be given, just like we don't need the gift of healings, we don't need the gift of miracles, even though those things still transpire. We don't need the gifts any longer to authenticate because this is done. It's complete. Does it make sense? So predictive prophecy, I believe, without a doubt, is, is just, it's ceased, it's, it's over with, it's revelatory in nature, it reveals what God will do. And if somebody comes to us now and says God is going to do something that isn't contained here, they're claiming to have predictive prophecy, and we should run in the opposite direction. Because all the predictions are here. All of the predictions that are pertinent to us are here. There's a long line of people, Harold Camping and others, who claim to have this gift. And, you know, Jesus didn't come back in 88. So, quite the uh, strange phenomenon. Since God's full revelation is here, we don't need this gift any longer. The Spirit no longer gives it out. Not to mention that in 1 Corinthians 13.8, it says just very clearly that this particular gift will pass away. It'll go away. The argument isn't between people. The argument isn't whether it will cease. I think pretty much all Christians believe it'll cease. The argument is over when. Some say it's still going, but I say, and a great many say, and all of the Reformed theologians say, that since the completion of the Word, there's no need for it. We don't need anyone to give us any predictions, because all the predictions we have are here. Uh, J. Mac wrote, since the completion of Scripture, prophecy has no longer been the means of new revelation, but has only proclaimed what has already been revealed in Scripture. So that's interesting. Now, in Paul's day, the spiritual gift of predictive prophecy, it was still being given to certain individuals since the Bible was not yet complete, namely given to the apostles. Every time they spoke and revealed God's word and predicted things, see how you can tie the revelatory characteristic to them? The apostles had it. Uh, even Agabus had it. He was a prophet in a sense. Uh, Simeon and Anna, those are the two that... Uh, 
Jesus, baby Jesus and the family encountered at the temple when they went to have him dedicated. Simeon is a man who prophesied over Jesus in that moment. Anna was a prophetess, she's called, who prophesied. They were actual, they actually had this gift then, uh, Luke 2, 34 to 36. Um, I don't actually think that predictive prophecy is the gift that Paul had in mind here in verse 10b. I don't think he's talking about the gift to predict I think he was pointing to the spiritual gift of pastoral prophecy. It's a lot different. It enables a person to preach God's word effectively so that it edifies, convicts the hearers. Remember, Paul identified the goal of all these spiritual gifts in our immediate context in verse 7. What is the goal of giving all these gifts? What is their purpose? To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. Okay? Pastoral, the gift of pastoral prophecy, the clear, precise, um, you would even say powerfully given exposition of God's word is intended for the common good of the church. I don't see how predictive prophecy would be for the good, just telling us about things that are going to play out that we can't find in scripture. And how is that good for the church? That's not for the common good. Therefore, that gift is absolutely gone. The spiritual gift of pastoral prophecy seems to fit perfectly here since it lines up with the goal of the common good, building up the saints. Paul provides the clearest definition of this gift in 1 Corinthians 14.3 where he wrote, the one who prophesies foretells the future. No, that's not what he says. The one who prophesies speaks to people for their up building for their encouragement, for their consolation. Ladies and gentlemen, he's talking about the spiritual gift of pastoral prophecy, not predictive. The spiritual gift of pastoral prophecy is not revelatory. It's not revealing anything new that God wants to say. It only explains and applies God's full revelation, the whole Bible. This means that it is what? ongoing. It will continue until the return of Christ. It will not cease until then because it is not a ceasing gift. Predictive prophecy is a ceasing gift. We have the word. Pastoral prophecy is ongoing because we need someone under the supernatural gifting and power of the Holy Spirit to explain to us what this means. Does that make sense? Therein lies the difference. Paul is talking about pastoral prophecy, a manifestation, a gift given by the Spirit to preach the word with clarity, precision, and conviction. And you say, well, doesn't that gift go out to all preachers? No, it doesn't. Some preachers don't belong in pulpits. They make the word of God seem dead. And the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. One of my favorite verses, Hebrews 4.12. R.C. Sproul had the gift, this spiritual gift of pastoral prophecy. Uh, one time he preached a message, and an older lady came to him after the service, sweet old lady came to him and said, I love your preaching so much. I enjoy it so much. I get so much from it. You make the word of God come alive. And he said, dear sister in the Lord, it's in the reverse. The word of God makes me come alive. It animates me. I don't make the word of God come alive. If anything, I try to kill it. The word of God makes me come to life. 
What was he saying there? He was saying the truth. The word of God animates through the spirit. And the one who has this spiritual gift, they will preach passionately with precision and clarity. They will have an edifying, upbuilding ministry. It will help the saints. And not everyone has it. There's a great many pulpiteers that do not have this, and it makes you wonder why they're in the pulpit. But in any case, God uses all of the men that he's chosen for this, this great task. It is not revelatory. It is simply expounding on the revelation of God in the word. The apostles had it, obviously. Barnabas had it. Simeon had it. He was called Niger. Lucius of Cyrene had it. Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, had it. And Saul, who became Paul and an apostle, they all had this pastoral prophecy gift. Acts 13, 1, it describes them as having it. Judas, you're saying, oh, no, not him. No, Judas, not Iscariot. More than one person back in the first century had this name. I don't know about you, but after Iscariot, I would have said, I'm getting my name changed. I'm going down to the civil law. Change it to Judah. It's a little better. But Judas, not Iscariot, who had a friend named Silas. We know him, right? He went around after Barnabas with Paul. They are called prophets who did what? Who foretold the future. No who encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words, Acts 15, 32. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the spiritual gift of pastoral prophecy. Some have it. These men had it. The Spirit gives this spiritual gift to certain believers today, especially to a great many preachers. In fact, we go back early on. Augustine had it. Luther had it. Zwingli had it. Calvin had it. Edwards had it in such great measure that when he preached sermons, it caused people in the audience to cringe so bad they left nail marks in the pews that you can still go and see today in the church where he preached. He preached with such powerful conviction. People were like, just couldn't, they just couldn't bear it. Amazing. He had it. He had this spiritual gift. Edwards had it. Whitfield had it. Yes, Wesley had it. Yes, Spurgeon had it. Yes, M.L. Jones had it. Yes, Adrian Rogers had it. Billy Graham had it. May not agree with everything, but he had it. Countryman has it. Still given. If a man preaches with convicting power like maybe Vody Bauckham or Steve Lawson or, or Paul Washer. Have you ever sat through a Paul Washer sermon? You'll throw a shoe through your TV. He's right. Got to go get a new TV. Power. In, in, in the hands of men like this, the world, the, the world, the, yeah, the world is in trouble. The word it is a double-edged sword that pierces to the division of soul and spirit, to joints and of marrow, and discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The man who has this spiritual gift, he's like Nathan, whose potent preaching brought David to the end of himself. Wrecked. Ruined. 2 Samuel 12, 7 to 14. Go read Psalm 51, David's confession after hearing the sermon of Nathan. 
The man who has the spiritual gift is like Peter, whose potent preaching convicted 3,000 men on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2.41. He's like Paul, whose potent preaching wrecked false religion in Ephesus by causing almost everyone in the city to dispose of their Harry Potter books. They're magical art books. Acts 19, 19. I am so surprised that joke fell as flat as it did. Well, they took it. You read the account in Acts 19, 19. This was a city of magical arts. It was the Hogwarts of its day. Right? And they, after hearing a sermon, took them all and burned them in the town square. Book burning. We've got to get rid of this demonic stuff. That, my friends, is a man who is anointed, if you will, gifted with this spiritual gift of pastoral prophecy on fire in a pulpit preaching. And we know it is the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit. But the man is still there doing his job. This, my friends, is what the spiritual gift of prophecy is like. It is the hammer of powerful preaching that dashes men's and women's hearts to pieces. Let's move to the next spiritual gift. And this is where we'll talk about that third one. Remember, there's another P. But this is the spiritual gift. Discernment. G, discernment. We see this in verse 10C. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. That just means discernment. And why, why does this gift have to be given to? Why was it given? Well, it's because... You've always had false prophets, false prophetesses, and pseudo-prophecy everywhere at all times since the fall. Jeremiah 5.31, Matthew 7.15, 2 Peter 2.1, Revelation 2.20, on and on and on and on. Because of the presence of false prophets, false prophetesses, and pseudo-prophecy, the Spirit also gives the gift of distinguishing between spirits or discernment. This gift is given to certain believers. Okay, think of it like this. The gift of pastoral prophecy is supernatural speaking. The gift of discernment is supernatural listening. Okay? Make sense? The Greek word behind distinguish, which we see in our text, means to separate out for examination and to judge in order to determine what is genuine and what is spurious. The person who possesses this spiritual gift has the ability to pick out truth from error. He or she can tell when something spoken falls short and fails to pass the biblical sniff test. They can detect errors and false doctrines. They can discern between true biblical prophecy, what has been foretold here, and pseudo or false prophecy. That's pretty much anything and everything that doesn't align with this. They know a good sermon from a bad sermon. Why? Because they know the word. They are, in a sense, Berean, like those ancient people who would take a sermon and go and compare it to the scripture and come back and give an analysis. They did this with Paul, and they came back, they heard a sermon, went and did their study, they had discernment, they came back and said, what you said is on point. Thank you. <clears throat> the person who has this gift can supernaturally hear, compare, and make judgments. And the person who has this gift can not only discern, but they're not going to be silenced on it, and they will point things out in love. 
this gift causes them to challenge error, not just sit there and go, that's wrong, but to do it in a loving way. Now, think of this. Under the old covenant, pseudo-prophets, and there was no shortage of them, they were literally put to death. They were killed. Leviticus 13.5 says, and this is from the NLT because I just need a paraphrase of it. The false prophets or visionaries who try to lead you astray must be put to death, for they encourage rebellion against the Lord your God who redeemed you from slavery and brought you out of the land of Egypt. Since they try to lead you astray from the way of the Lord your God commanded you to live, you must put them to death. In this way, you will purge evil from among you. So back in under the old covenant, when a person claimed to be a prophet and then predicted or gave bad pastoral advice, people who had the gift of discernment, who knew the word, would listen. And if they determined that it would be false, it wasn't like, hey, just leave our church. It was, let's take him outside the city gates and kill him because he's trying to mislead the people of God. It was a very, very serious crime. So if the spiritual gift of pastoral prophecy remains until Christ returns, then it is logical for the spiritual gift of discernment to also remain. If a man is going to stand in a pulpit claiming to have the spiritual gift of pastoral prophecy and he preaches the word, there has to be people present who are gifted to be able to listen intently and carefully and measure what he's saying, right? These two gifts go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other, right? Because it is possible for someone to claim to have prophetic gifts and to utter and spew false prophecy. So somebody has to be gifted with discernment to know. And I would tell you this, every believer built into their spiritual DNA has some measure of this gift. And they can either strengthen and grow it through reading the word or they can squander it by not reading the word. Have you ever asked yourself why certain churches, uh, quote unquote churches, have so many people in them when they are spewing such uh, errors and false doctrines? Because there is an absence of the gift of discernment there, because people don't read the Bible for their word, they just take the preacher's word for it all the time. There's a, a number of reasons. It's God's judgment against a people to have people in false churches. I mean, there's any number of reasons. You simply cannot have one without the other. Like, you cannot have the gift of pastoral prophecy without the spiritual gift of discernment. You can't have one without the other in a fallen world that is dominated by lies, deception, demonic influence, where the devil does what? Cleverly disguises himself as an angel of light. He's always trying to deceive the people of God. He already has the people that are not God's people deceived. Now he's trying to deceive us through false teachers and false prophets and everything else. So we have to have the spiritual gift of discernment in the Bible or we're going to be in big trouble. The absence of this spiritual gift can cause believers to fall victim to every expression of human cunning, every wind of doctrine, and every craftiness and deceitful schemes. That's Ephesians 4.14. In reference to Paul's day, Charles Hodge said this, it was therefore of importance to have a class of men with the gift of discernment who could determine whether a man spoke truth or spoke only from the impulse of his own mind or from the dictation of some evil spirit. What Hodge said was absolutely perfectly accurate of the first century. And what he said is equally the same for us today. Without the spiritual gift of discernment, it would be difficult, if not impossible at times, to detect the fierce wolves and to guard the flock of God. 
which he obtained with his own blood. Acts 20, 28 to 29, it is absolutely necessary. It is required for an elder to have the gift of discernment because his chief responsibility is to guard the flock of God. If he can't tell the difference between truth and error, he's useless in that profession. He will let error come in. He will let the people of God be attacked by wolves, by false teachings. You have to have it. Bare minimum in a church, the elders have to possess it. They need to possess the spiritual gift of pastoral prophecy because they're called to teach. They need to possess the spiritual gift of discernment. They have to have these things. It's necessary. If they don't have it, church is in trouble. And that's why I say bare minimum, the Spirit gives it to the elders of a church. They have to have the gift of discernment. This concludes the middle section of point three, the diversity of spiritual gifts. And we tackled three more today. And Lord willing, we will focus on the end portion and look at the two remaining gifts, which New Testament scholar Gordon Fee called the problem child. <laughs> All right. So that should make for an exciting Sunday this coming Sunday.